Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to be looking at Christ in family and work this morning. So let's get after it. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we rejoice at the opportunity to study your word. And God, we humble our hearts before you. We need your direction. We need your counsel. And we also acknowledge that we need the power to be able to live these things out. We thank you that the gospel is alive in our lives today, that you love us, that you died for us and rose again. So God, would you transform us in this area of family and this area of work? So we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so, so important to study this paragraph inside of the context of the book of Colossians. I think a lot of people pick up this few verses about marriage and work and don't understand the foundation that has been laid. So let me remind you of where we've been in Colossians, of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us, that we are in Christ, that our identity is found in Christ. We're forgiven, we're the children of God. This is laid out so thoroughly for us in chapter one and in chapter two. We oftentimes find our identity in our family relationships and in our work, but our identity is really supposed to be found in the Lord. Chapter 3, the internal part of us, what's not seen, our mind is to be fixed where? On things that are above. We're to have an eternal perspective on things that are above. Then putting off the old man and putting on the new man, these new garments of Christ, this is our character. That then results in being thankful, singing to the Lord, being in a place where God's peace rules our hearts, the word of God dwells in us richly. Church, if we're not paying attention to who Jesus is and this internal state of our being, our mind and our character, it's going to be really difficult to live these things out. It's going to be impossible to live these things out apart from Christ. But in Christ, he is the hope of glory. He's the one living inside of us, and he can help us to be able to live these things out. This may sound counterintuitive, but get your eyes off of your family, and get your eyes off of your work, and get your eyes on Jesus, because the only way to live out what God is calling us to in our families and in our work is to focus on Jesus, and as we're focused on him and walking in relationship with him, then that overflows to our families and also to our work. Let me share a couple things about family before we get into our text. The first is this. Take a deep breath. There's no perfect family. All right? Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right? So don't approach this that you're going to bat a thousand, that you're going to hit a home run, that somehow your family is going to be the perfect family. In the book of Genesis, we find the first family that ever was created by God, Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Imagine the hope and the anticipation with these two sons that are born. Imagine what they don't grow up with. They do have sinful natures because sin has entered the world, but they don't have the internet. They don't have video games. They don't have this peer influence. They got a pretty good environment to be able to grow up in, but how does it end? Homicide. The first family ended in homicide where Cain kills Abel. 
You go on in Genesis and you find Abraham, this great man of faith, but he also struggled in his faith and chose to have sex with his handmaiden, Hagar, to have Ishmael because he and Sarah weren't able to have a child. That wasn't God's design. So when you step out of God's design, there's all this tension inside of Abraham's family. But you'll find that God doesn't forsake Abraham. And God begins to bring about redemption in Abraham's family, even with Hagar and Ishmael. So it's not about perfect families, is it? It's about redeemed families. Well, let's go a little further in Genesis. Maybe that's just Adam and, and Abraham. Then we get to Isaac, this promised child. Sarah and Abraham finally do have a child. And Isaac, his wife's not getting pregnant, prays. God blesses them with twins, this excitement of twins. Unfortunately, they were fighting in the womb, fighting to who could get out first. And Esau comes out first, and they call him Harry. Esau literally means Harry. He must have been extremely Harry, right? If your name's Harry, hopefully you didn't get your name because you are Harry, right? Jacob literally means heel catcher, second one born, but he's wanting that position of being first, and that never goes away. And ultimately, Jacob deceives his dad to get the birthright. Esau wants to kill his brother, so Jacob has to flee. Not going very well. Another dysfunctional family. Jacob decides to get married to Rachel. Unfortunately, there's a bride swap. Laban, the uncle, what does he choose to do? He has Leah marry Jacob without Jacob knowing it. That's hard to pull off right? So here's Jacob, and he wakes up to the wrong woman, decides to go ahead and marry them both. If you're having marriage difficulties, I I want you to rejoice because you're probably not married to sisters, right? Like that's a marital train wreck right there. He's married to sisters. And they start literally having a baby war. Who could have the most babies in order to earn Jacob's affection? They start sharing their handmaidens with Jacob. So he's having sexual relations with four women. And out of that come 12 sons. And the sons really despise Joseph. God in his grace allows those 12 sons to become the 12 tribes of Israel. The birth of the nation of Israel is out of a broken family. So we all bring brokenness to the table, but more importantly, brokenness to the cross. And as we bring brokenness to the cross, God is able to bring redemption into our family relationships. The other thing about family is we need to see family as a blessing from the Lord. We need to see marriage and children as a blessing from the Lord. If you're single, see marriage and blessing, marriage and children as a blessing from the Lord. Not meaning that God is calling you to be married or by any way that you're experiencing something less, but our worldview of how we see family needs to line up according to Scripture. Does that make sense? So I want to read Psalms 127 to you, a few verses. You don't have to churn there. The first is this. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In context of Psalms 127, he's talking about family. Unless the Lord builds the family, you labor in vain. And here's God's declaration of family. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. 
They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. God says children are a heritage from the Lord. That word heritage means reserved blessing. If you think of leaving an inheritance or someone has left an inheritance to you, maybe you go, I want this specific thing to go to this specific child. God says, I know you and I want to bless you with this specific inheritance from the Lord. So that kind of sets the framework for getting into this text about marriage and work. Verse 18 of Colossians 3, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. All right, there you have it, verse 19, no comments. <laughs> Seems like submission has become almost a, a cuss word in our, our culture. I'm sure for some of you ladies, you hear this and you're going, you know, I, I'm out. If I could walk out right now, I would, but it'd be really awkward because everybody would know I'm really angry. And it's easy to look at this and go, well, this has to be for generations gone past. This has to be cultural. This, this couldn't be what God is prescribing for marriage and, and for family. This is God's teaching for family. This is the order that he has set up for marriage. And it's stated several times in scripture. And it's very, very clear that God has given us this directive. But I think that submission has been largely misunderstood and unfortunately has been abused. So submission doesn't mean that you're inferior to your husband. And submission doesn't mean that your husband is able to treat you in a way that is hurtful, that is in a way that is abusive. That, we'll see that clearly as we get into verse 19. One of the clearest pictures of submission that we see and that we find is inside of the Trinity. Everything about God is that there is order and design. When we look at creation, there is order and there is design all around us. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but yet one God. And inside of the Trinity, the Father is the authority. It's very clear in Christ's ministry, even when he was 12 years old, He's in the temple and he says, I'm here to do my father's business. He wasn't here to do his own business. As he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, speaking of the cross, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So, so ladies, as you're wrestling with submission, look at Jesus. Jesus submitted to the father, but the father was always complimenting the son. Are the father... And the son equals. Yes, even though the father has the position of the authority. Is Jesus less than the father? No, because that would make Jesus not God. So Jesus is God. It's not robbery for Jesus to think of himself as God. That's right and appropriate. So they're, they're complete equals, but there is this authority that God has placed even inside of himself, even inside of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So inside of this relationship, there is no selfishness. It's a beautiful example of, of submission. So coming underneath your husband's authority, coming underneath the position that God has given to him. In Ephesians 5, you'll want to write that down. It's a parallel text to this. There's a bigger picture that's being painted in a godly marriage, and it is a picture of Christ in the church. 
The way that wives respect and submit to their husbands is the way that the church respects Christ. And as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the the head of the home. How may this play out a little bit? So this is how it doesn't play out. Husbands, you don't come home and say, "Uh, by the way, babe, uh, we're moving to Kansas City. (laughs) We're going, right? Guys, try that out and see how it goes. So, so did you take notes at church this morning? Like, you got to do what I say, right? This is how this is going to go, right? Good luck for you. We're, we're not even going to give you marriage counseling if that's your attitude, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. We will. But, so how does this really play out in a marriage? Hopefully, guys, you understand that your wife is co-heir in Christ, You are co-heirs in Christ. She's your partner in life. And you are coming to a decision. You should talk about it. You should pray about it. You should get into God's word together. Seek out some godly counsel. After going through this process, most times it becomes clear this is God's decision for our family. If you've got two individuals that are focusing on Christ, you're saying, we want God's decision for us. Not my decision Not my spouse's decision, but we want God's decision for us. And as you go through that process, usually there's a yielding that takes place and you come to a much better decision than if just one of you would have made uh, the decision. But sometimes, even after going through that process, the husband and wife still may have opposing views on the decision. What do you do? Ladies, you turn it over to your husband and you say, you're the head of our home. I trust you. And I trust that you're going to seek the Lord and make the best decision for our family and I'll follow you. And you will probably see a scared to death look on your husband's face. (laughs) Because all of a sudden that really raises the pressure of, wow, my wife trusts me and she's really trusting me to make a good decision for our family. And the way that God has wired men is we desire respect. And so coming underneath our leadership, that communicates respect uh, to us. We have to accept God's design for marriage and family and work. If we don't accept his design, we're always going to be swimming upstream against God. So if we want God's blessing and his best and his help inside of our marriages, we have to say, you know what, I can't just look at culture. I can't just look at the way that I was raised. I got to look at the word of God. God's the one who put marriage together. So I'm going to seek to do this unto the Lord. And that's the key here in verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Ladies, it's not about your husband. It's about the Lord. You look to the Lord and you say, based upon who the Lord is, I'm choosing to follow God and to respect my husband and come underneath his leadership. So to husbands in verse 19, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. To agape in the Greek, God is calling us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. Hopefully as someone looks on at a Christian marriage and the husband, they're able to see an example of Christ. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Christ living in us that allows us to love our wives in this way. So marriage just isn't about our own mutual satisfaction. 
Thankfully, God provides that inside of marriage, but it's something much bigger than ourselves of saying we get the opportunity to be a testimony of the gospel, a testimony of who Jesus is. I think that our culture is really ripe to see who Jesus is through the testimony of marriage, right? A lot of people don't even believe in marriage anymore. They don't see the value in committing to to marriage anymore. So, Though we're fallen and we're broken, as we seek to live this out before, before the Lord, it's a testimony to our neighbors, it's a testimony to our kids, our families, in the workplace of this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. So husbands, God is calling you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. How does Jesus love us? He loves us prayerfully, he's praying for us, we need to be praying for our wives. He loves us sacrificially, he laid down his life for us. The incarnational ministry of Jesus where he came into our world and was the sacrifice for our sins. We come into our wife's world and we serve her and we, and we love her. So in no way are we using this position that God has given us in the family to be abusive towards our wives, but to love them unconditionally with the, the love of God. Now, as we take our eyes off of our spouse and put our eyes on Jesus, Marriage is not 50-50. It's not 50-50. It's not husbands sitting over in a corner and going, well, my wife doesn't respect me, so I'm not going to love her. My wife doesn't respect my leadership. She's always bucking me on this, and she doesn't treat me very nice, so I'm not going to love her, right? It's not wives over in their corner going, you know, my husband doesn't love me, so, so I'm not going to respect him. It's looking at the Lord and saying, it doesn't matter what my spouse is doing. It doesn't matter if my spouse is reciprocating. I'm choosing to honor God and I'm choosing to love my wife. So that's when God begins to move and God begins to work inside of a marriage is when we begin to say, this is what the Lord is calling me to do. This is what the Lord is asking me to do. And guys, the way that God has created our wives is they need to know that they're loved. We have a desire to know that we're respected, but our wives need to know that they're loved. There's an old story of a couple who was riding in their truck with a bench seat, and they'd been married for 40 years, and the wife looks over at the husband and says, you remember when we were dating and early on in our marriage, we are always sitting close next to each other. What's happened in our relationship? The husband looks over and goes, I never moved. (laughs) And guys, there can be kind of this attitude in marriage like, well, babe, I told you that I loved you when we got married. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) That's not going to go very well in marriage, right? Our wives need to hear over and over how much we love them from a genuine heart to to say it in our words, to say it in our actions, to say it in our deeds, to, to love them as, as Christ loves the church. Then there's this warning here that God sees a tendency inside of husbands to be bitter towards their wives. It's also translated harsh. This harshness that comes from bitterness. Satan's an accuser of the brethren and the sistren, right? So be careful if you start running your wife in your mind in a negative direction. I can't believe she did this, or 
she always does that, or I'm so tired of this, or, and before you know it, you find yourself in a place where you're being bitter, you're being harsh towards the spouse that God has provided. This is God's design. This is God's intent for our marriages, that wives are submitting, that husbands are loving. In verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So while a child is in the home, not when they're an adult and they're on their own, but children are to come underneath the authority of their parents. They're to obey their parents in the Lord. This is well-pleasing to God. As they obey their parents, they're pleasing God because God is the one who set up this system of authority. So it's Friday evening. Hannah and I, my oldest daughter, were at the Dollar Tree. You guys ever go to the Dollar Tree? Everything's a dollar. The greeting cards are 50 cents, right? You go everywhere else and it's like $4 to $10, They may not be quite as creative, but they're 50 cents. (laughs) So we get our stuff, and we're standing in line, getting ready to check out, and there's three teenage boys that are in front of us, and they're being complete punks. Like, they came in to Dollar Tree to try to get someone angry, to try to get someone to fight with them, and who they were focused on was the guy that was running the register. So at the register, you got the belt with your stuff going up. On this particular register where they set it up, there's like the candy rack. Well, you could drop stuff behind that belt, and you're never going to get it out, right? And one of these teen guys, he, he takes something, and he looks at the guy, and he just drops it in there. Like, yeah, come on, right? So the guy behind the register goes, so are you going to crawl underneath there and get it out? And he's like, no. You know, gives him, gives him more attitude. And things begin to escalate over the course of of a few minutes. And these three boys say something to him that causes the guy running the register to say, I'm getting off in 30 minutes, right? And that's exactly what those boys wanted. And they stand at the door going, is that a threat? Is that a threat? Is that a threat? Like this is their MO to make adults angry for the adults to do something that's pushing it. And then they get to hold the adults accountable, So the three boys go out. Now I'm standing in front of this guy, and I ask him, do you get that a lot? And you know what his answer was to me? All the time. All the time. And he said, kids don't have any respect for anyone anymore. Right? So then it goes a little further. A few seconds later, here comes mom. She goes, my son's 14 years old, and did you tell him? that you're going to get off in 30 minutes? How dare you threaten my son? And used every kind of cuss word in the book and is screaming it out through the Dollar Tree, right? Now, I just want to tell you, if, if that was me when I was 14 years old and my mom got wind of it, it would have been a different story. You know what I'm saying? My mom would have said, hey, go ahead, have your way with them in the parking lot. You, you can have them after I'm done with them, Right? So for us as parents, if God has blessed you with children, one of the big lessons that we need to try to teach our kids is one of there is authority in this life and God's the one who set it up. And right now, I'm that authority in your life. And by honoring me as your parent, you're, you're honoring God. 
This is a hard lesson for kids to learn. And in order to learn it, it takes some discipline and training. And it can wear us out as parents. I got to tell you as a kid, I was not a good pupil in this area, right? As my parents were teaching me respect and obedience, I was not like, thank you so much. May I please have some more, right? And the book of Hebrews tells us that this process of training and this process of discipline, it's not easy. It's painful, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So keep it up. Keep after it. Say, look, I'm not going to allow you to be disrespectful. And this is why. And I'm going to bring some consequences in your life. I'm going to bring some loving discipline in your life. Because where kids learn respect and obedience to authority, God's design is in the home. And when they learn it in the home, then it tends to overflow to teachers. And then it overflows to the boss. And it overflows to to police officers. And they realize God is the one who has set this authority in place. And verse 21 balances this out. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So as parents, we need to not only teach discipline and teach respect, but this is nurturing saying, I don't want to provoke them to a point where they get discouraged or, or they get angry. The word provoke means to stir up or, or to challenge, where we're pushing the child's buttons and trying to get them to explode or be discouraged. It's the idea of a bank account. You know, in your bank accounts, we all make withdrawals, we all spend money, but hopefully we're making deposits as well. Hopefully there's a paycheck that is going into those bank accounts and it doesn't work out very well in a bank account if there's not more deposits than withdrawals. And it doesn't work out very well in relationships if there isn't deposits. So the discipline's the withdrawal. But if all we do is discipline and there isn't the deposit of love and the deposit of nurturing, the deposit of relationship, it's been said that rules without relationship equals rebellion, right? So that's the balance to this, is to provide the relationship, provide the nurturing, provide the care, and the discipline as well. So may God give us strength and grace in that. Verse 22, it shifts the focus on work. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. The word bondservant in the Greek is doulos, and it literally means slave. Paul is writing to slaves here. Slaves in the church would have a huge question in the church of Colossae. What do I do with this issue of slavery? What do I do with this issue of my master? And Paul says, I want you to serve, not according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. This is such a radical verse when you stop and think about it. Because I think that we can declare from God's word to Genesis to Revelation that it's not God's heart for slavery. God is not writing and saying that he instructs or condones slavery here. God's the one who created us. He bought us with his blood. We belong to the Lord. It breaks my heart that people are enslaved. I'm sure Paul was not condoning slavery here. But what is Paul teaching? He's teaching the gospel. All of this is about the gospel in the family, an opportunity to reflect the gospel, but also at work to be able to reflect the gospel. 
You know what was more important to Paul than overthrowing the Roman Empire or ending slavery is that people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I believe as people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, then society begins to change. This would have been hard to hear if you were a slave. We make the application of our work, of having a boss and learning to say, I'm going to do my work under the Lord. I don't have my eye on my boss or my coworkers or even on my paycheck. I've got my eye on the Lord and I'm serving the Lord. Out of respect to the Lord, I want to do my work with all sincerity. I want to do my work wholeheartedly unto the Lord. In verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Doesn't work that has the heart in it shine? Doesn't it really shine? So when I was growing up, the way that my dad structured things is Saturdays began with a chore. So you either mowed the lawn or washed the car. So if you wanted to go hang out, shoot hoops, we'll get your chore done first. So I grew up washing the Ford Fairmont, which then became the Ford Taurus. Remember those station wagons, right? Then I got my driver's license was ready to take the Ford Taurus out on a date. And I was washing the car to get ready for this date. And I got to tell you, the Ford Taurus looked a lot better that Saturday than most Saturdays. (laughs) Most Saturdays, it was like, Dad, I'm done. I'm out of here, right? But that Saturday, I really put my heart into it, like she was going to be impressed with a Ford Taurus, right? (laughs) But we know the difference when, when our heart is in our work. And, and maybe you go, you know, I'm struggling to have my heart in my work. Or it's been a long time since I've really put my heart into my work. Maybe you've done your work long enough where you can kind of do it halfway asleep and get away with it. But you know, I haven't really engaged my, my effort into it. Maybe you do have a difficult boss or don't get respect from, from coworkers. This is where we get our eyes on the Lord and we say, okay, God, I'm choosing to put my heart into my work because I want it to be worship unto you. Whether I get a raise, whether my boss recognizes it, or other people appreciate it or not, I am working for the Lord. I'm not working to, to please people. In verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, you, for you serve the Lord. So God sees if you're working unto him, he's going to reward you. Jesus said if you serve a child a cup of cold water, he's going to reward you openly. So there's a lot of work in the family as well. There's work in marriage. There's work in in raising kids. There's work in the home, being single, whatever. Whether it's work at home or work at work, God sees that work, and if you're serving him, if you're, if you're doing it unto him, he is going to reward you. That's that heavenly perspective. In verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So you're being mistreated at work. This slave says, look, I've got the wrong deal here. Here I am a slave, and he's my master. I'm not even getting, getting paid at all. God's going to set all those things right. Your boss ultimately is going to stand before the Lord. The company that you work for, the school that you you work for, you're going to stand before the Lord. God will take care of those injustices. We end with verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this would be those that did own slaves. And Paul's saying, look, you better make sure that you treat them with justice and you treat them with fairness. And if God has given you the opportunity to own a company, given you the opportunity to be a supervisor or a boss, there's people that work for you and underneath you, make sure that you're treating them with justice and fairness. Give to them what's just, give to them what's fair. Why? Because you're accountable to the Lord. Because you have a master in heaven. And the idea is, how does God treat us is then how we should serve and treat those that the Lord is calling us to be able to lead. So what have we seen this morning? Well, we've seen wives submitting, husbands loving, children obeying, workers doing work wholeheartedly unto the Lord, bosses, masters, treating employees with with fairness. And as we seek to apply these things in our lives, is allowing our worship to be expressed in our family and in our work. As we close this morning, I want to give opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And much like many Sunday mornings, we're going to sing a worship song to the Lord. There's going to be a ministry team here, pastors available. But if you say, you know, I have this family relationship that's really broken, that's really hurting with a parent, with a child, with, with a spouse, come and receive prayer. Say, Lord, I'm turning this over to you and I'm asking that you would work in this family relationship. And Lord, that you would change me, that you would help me. I really want to try to apply your word inside of these relationships. Don't get discouraged by the dysfunction and the brokenness. But turn that over to the Lord and say, God, would you work in this? Would you redeem this? Would you change this? For some marriages, your your marriages are healthy. Keep walking in the guidelines of Scripture. For some, your marriage is on maintenance mode. Go out of maintenance mode and go into investment mode. For some, your marriage is really in a difficult place. And this morning, come and receive prayer. You may or may not know this here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, but we try to serve you with biblical counsel, and it's free. You can call the church office and say, we need someone to walk alongside of us in our marriage. And it may take a few weeks, especially after a message like this, there may be a big response, but man, we want to provide that for you. There's marriage classes that happen throughout the year. Say, I want to take advantage of those, those marriage classes. But this morning, to start right now and to say, I want to receive prayer in this area of family and relationship. Or in the area of work. You go, man, my heart hasn't been in my work. I'm in a really difficult place in my job, and I want to come and receive prayer. I want to encourage you. You know, sometimes people will come and share with our pastoral team you know, praying for you because we realize it's so hard to be a, be a pastor. And that's true, and we really do appreciate that. But we also want you to know we're praying for you because we know the secular workforce is not easy too. You're dealing with some things that I'm not dealing with. Now, there's no cuss words flying around our staff meetings most of the time. <laughs> right? 
But at your workplace, I'm sure you're dealing with all kinds of darkness, all kinds of, of evil, all kinds of perversity. People come in after a weekend talking about all the craziness that they did over the weekend, and you're like, hey, I went to church. Like, you did what? And then you become the oddball. And so we're praying for you because the biggest mission field that we have is our work. And you're around unbelievers, and God is using you and wants to continue to use you, and you shine the love of Jesus Christ in your workplace to be able to say, I'm doing this unto Jesus with an attitude that glorifies the Lord. That then gives opportunity to share who Jesus is. So we're praying for you, and we know that it's difficult, and we understand that the mission field is in the workplace. The mission field is in the family. You're just as much on mission as the missionaries that the church supports that are international. Just as much, right? Because each believer, God has strategically placed in neighborhoods, in apartments, in jobs, in families to be able to shine the love of Jesus Christ. So work's really not about the paycheck. Work is about the opportunity to glorify the Lord. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you've designed things, how you have set things up inside of marriage and family. And we ask for your grace, your strength, Christ in us to help us to really live out these roles. We thank you that you have created the world for work. You work in and of yourself and give us the ability in your image to work and help us to see whatever we do to do it wholeheartedly unto you, to glorify you. Lord, I pray for those difficult family situations and those difficult work situations that you would intervene. So Lord, we love you. Just continue in an attitude of prayer as we head into this last song. And if you need to respond, if you're saying there's a broken family relationship, this is a difficult work situation, or possibly you've never received Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Jesus personally, the issue's not your family and work, it's Jesus. And to realize he loves you, that he died for you upon the cross, he rose again, to repent of sin, to turn from sin, and to believe Jesus' free gift, to receive that free gift and say, Jesus, I trust you for salvation. I'm inviting you to be the Lord of my life. If you've never made that decision of faith, we invite you to come as well right now and let somebody on the ministry team know, let a pastor know I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. So if the Spirit of God's prompting you to respond, please respond during the song and let's worship the Lord together.